You're listening to a sermon podcast from Church at the Gates, where we desire for real people to meet the real Jesus and experience real change. We pray that God might use the next few minutes to draw you closer to Him. Open up your copies of God's Word to the book of Daniel. We are well past Psalms. We are in like the back third of the Old Testament. Uh, If you need to, you can open the table of contents in your Bible and start wherever you need to start to get to Daniel. And I want you to keep a finger in Daniel 7. Daniel chapter 7 today as we uh, work through our our series on every book for all of life. We take books of the Bible, summarize them and show them how, and show us how we really interact with these on a daily basis. So will you pray with me this morning as we open God's word? God, we, we're just grateful. We think about this season of Thanksgiving and um, that even in hard years where there's been much to lament, your faithfulness is seen not as the silver lining, but that is the, as the undergirding for a year. God, if we pause long enough, we can see your hand in every part of our lives. We have reason for deep gratitude, not only for salvation, uh, but how you protect us from ourselves sometimes and from others, how you provide for us. God, how you pour out grace and mercy upon us. And so we, your people, are grateful today and thankful that you never wax, you never wane in your care or love for us. No other God can say that, no other people can say that. It is you, the one true God, three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who loves us, holds us, and keeps us forever. God, watch over us. Uh, Holy Spirit, will you illuminate the text? Would you appoint us to your son, Jesus? In your name we pray, amen. Obedience for the Christian can be tricky. In particular, public obedience. Obedience where people are are looking. Obedience that might cost you. Obedience that makes you declare, I believe in the God of the Bible. Obedience to Christ where the outcome is uncertain, where God is asking you to say something, to do something, to live away, where the outcome is uncertain, where faithfulness at work might cost you that promotion, where faithfulness with your friends might cost you relationships, where faithfulness at school might cost you a final exam grade or cost you with professors, where faithfulness at home might cost you relationships with family members. Obedience in private is easier because it costs us just ourselves. Obedience in public is tricky because it potentially puts us in great need of God's protection or provision. Obedience with an uncertain outcome takes faith, right? That when God calls us to, to obedience, what he's calling us to is a step of faith, which is why many of us don't take a step of faith. All of us at some point have walked away from the, from the challenge, from the opportunity, because we're uncertain of the outcome. What will happen to me? What will happen to my family? Will I be able to provide? Will my kids still love me? 
obedience after all, privately or publicly, is saying, I trust that God's way is better than my way. Obedience at the very core is faith. Christian obedience is godly faith lived out. And so ultimately for all of us, our faith is seen in how we live. What you believe is worked out into your life. And on it, like that doesn't have to be an indictment on anyone. It can be and often is an indictment on us, but we are in progress, right? We are, we are works in progress. And so over our lives, we should, and we expect to see the Holy Spirit working more in us and growing more in obedience, public and private. And yet many of us, myself included, often won't obey because of the uncertainty of the outcome of that obedience. You know what's interesting? As a result of that, many of God's greatest miraculous works in our lives go unrealized by us because we're unwilling to put ourselves in a position to need God that way. That is to say, we're unwilling to take a step of faith where we would need God to put ourselves in a position where only God could help us, where only God could save us, where only God could provide for us. And so the testament to the world for many of us is that we follow a God who doesn't ask us to do radical things. We follow a God who doesn't ask us to do uh, things that shake up our lives. And we follow a God who doesn't do miraculous things anymore. That we have tamed God by our timidity. And so I just question I've been rolling through my mind. Offer it to you. Does my life reflect a trust in God? To that all of us go, well, no, not enough. But I think that's part of the question. This is how we grow. Our book today, Daniel, features a character whose trust in God's sovereignty worked its way out in simple and profound ways. The book of Daniel offers us a direction and a way forward for those of us, like myself, who get scared off of obedience by the uncertain outcomes of following Jesus. So today I want to introduce the book of Daniel. I want to set two examples from Daniel's life of, of, God's, of his faith in God's sovereignty and how that trickled down into his life into obedience. And then I want to offer one, uh, one application at the end. So briefly, let's go through kind of the, uh, uh, the basics of the book of Daniel. Who wrote the book of Daniel? And all God's people said... Well done. When was Daniel written? 605 BC. Uh, the best that we can think is Babylon comes in, destroys Jerusalem. And in the first wave of deportation, 605 BC, Daniel, his friends, and a bunch of the royal court of Jerusalem is taken to Babylon. And so Daniel likely is 15, 16, 17 years, maybe as young as 10, but that seems a little young by, by, my, by my virtue. But it's, it's somewhere in the teens, mid to late teens, I think. He's a young man. Young man, maybe sophomore, junior, senior in high school, just learning about the world. What is the structure of Daniel? Well, it is complicated but beautiful. It is, uh, it's written in two different languages, which makes it really interesting. Chapter 1 is in Hebrew, then chapters 2 through 7 are in Aramaic, and then 8 through 12 are back in Hebrew. And so we're forced to ask ourselves the question, because it's intentional, why are there two languages in the book of Daniel? 
And I want to offer this. Uh, they, they, these two languages offer hope and promise. When this was written, it was written to the Jewish people. Aramaic would have been the, the common language, the language du jour, the language across, the lingua franca or whatever. There's, it's just everywhere, okay? I don't, it was a language everyone spoke, common to everybody. Hebrew, though, was a language only spoken by God's people. It was unique to them. And so in, in the book of Daniel, we see primarily the narrative sections are written in Aramaic. Written in Aramaic to at least connect us to the exile. These things happened in Babylon. Uh, there was hope in Babylon. The stories happen in Babylon. And they're written in the Chaldean tongue. Then in Hebrew, Hebrew, the last half of Daniel, the last uh, five or six chapters, which are all prophecy. All, like you want your mind blown with some prophecy Read Ezekiel, then the last few chapters of Daniel, and you will have a lot of questions. But this prophecy is written in Hebrew, though, and it's written towards a future for the Hebrew people. The language uh, in Aramaic is meant to give us hope, uh, meant to give the readers hope that even in exile, obedience and faithfulness can be had, and then a hope for a future, a future promise that God isn't done with God's people. That though you may be in exile, that though your life may be hard, that though you may be persecuted, the promise of God, the sovereignty of God outweighs and oversees all of that. So that's just the language. And then there's this thing called chiasm. And I hesitate to mention other than just to say this. It's a way of writing Hebrew narrative with mirrored concepts leading towards a fulcrum of the book. So there are these mirrored concepts tiered all the way to like, a, if you put a pyramid on its, on its side, everything kind of, kind of focuses on one end. And so within Daniel, there's five or six smaller chiasms and then a larger chiasm. I took, I took this structure from a guy named Marty Solomon who I think grabs the essence of Daniel pretty well. And I want to put it up here. No chance you'll understand it or read it, but I just want to put it up there. This is, I think this is probably right. That in the structure of Daniel, there is this, there's the prologue and the epilogue, then there's prophecies of kingdom, the top, kingdom, the bottom, suffering, the top. All of that leading to chapters seven and eight. And so when you're reading Daniel, you're asking yourself, if, if seven and eight are really the center of the book, the center of the ideas, then what's at the center of the center? And when you look at the center of the center, you get Daniel 7, 13 through 14. I want to read it here. This is a, a vision from Daniel. He's prophesying the future. He says, in my vision, at night I looked, and there before me was one, like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days, that is God, and he was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion was an everlasting, is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. In a book having to do with how do you live in exile and what does it look like to be faithful and, and, and the chaos of what will come in the future uh, with, with the coming of the Son of Man, here at the fulcrum of the book, at, at the very center of the book, is the Son of Man, whose kingdom will never end. And so I just, I want to say this. You can read Daniel a lot of ways. And you can spend a lot of time in the back half of Daniel talking about the prophecies and, 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 and how important they are, and they really, really are. But those are not the focus of the book. God's sovereignty is at the core of the book of Daniel. 
We see God's sovereignty in Babylon, and we see God's sovereignty in the future times. That doesn't mean it's not consequential, because like you look in chapter 9, there's this detailed, like almost to the month and year foretelling of when Christ is coming. That is supremely important. But the overall picture of the book of, uh, of Daniel is a focus on God's sovereignty unthwarted by the actions of man and kings throughout history. So why is Daniel so important? The book of Daniel displays how trusting God's sovereignty creates a steadfast faith. That if you want to understand what to take away from Daniel is this, that if God is in control, if he is really at the top of the pecking order and all the universe runs through him and there's nothing that surprises him, then there is no chance that any king, president, politician, world order, anything can thwart him. And that's good news because we live in really uncertain times. We live, we live in times of great war, tribulation, and horror. And look, Daniel's one of the most famous books. There's a lion's den. There's a fiery furnace. I mean, it's, there's a ton of great things. And yet the overall sweep of the book of Daniel is to point our eyes up at God and his sovereignty that we would have as a result of that flowing from that steadfast faith in any circumstance. We see this in Daniel's life. Despite all the challenges and upheavals of that young teenage boy, we see God's promotion of Daniel and his friends. We see God, God's protection of Daniel and his friends. We see God's provision for Daniel and his friends. We see God giving uh, Daniel prophecies about how uh, world kingdoms coming and going. And yet Daniel, in all of this, and all this, in his great trust of God, would not be defiled by food, uh, bad food, would not lie down or bow down, would not live a private Christian life. Ultimately, Daniel believed that God was in, in power and in control. And contrary to the gods of that day, Daniel understood that, that Yahweh did not just reside in Israel, but he was the God over all creation. And so we see Daniel living out this faith. And I'll just be honest, like, Daniel's faith is often understood as courage, right? Very, very, but courage is downstream of faith. Courage is not the same thing. Courage is how we describe people doing faithful things in the face of uncertain outcomes. So here's Daniel in Babylon. And I want to give two examples of Daniel's faith in God's sovereignty that flow into steadfast faith. So this is what we're talking about. If this is true, that we can have faith in God's sovereignty, that he is in control, uh, that, that, that nothing outside, uh, nothing happens outside of his decree or understanding. And look, I... I'm not saying I have the answers because some of you say, well, wait a second, what about this? What about this? What about this? I'll just say this, like a version of God where he is surprised or by what happens on earth or somehow not in control of what happens on earth is worse for us. Then what does that make God? Fickle, capricious, absent? I at least have a place for my hardship and my sorrow in God's sovereignty. I have a place where it could fit. I have answers that I, can, that I can live with. And I live in a universe that will ultimately all be well. So two examples from Daniel's life where his faith in God's sovereignty, his faith in God's control moves him to steadfast obedience. Number one, we're gonna look at faith over food. Faith over food from chapter one. So imagine yourself, you're an Israelite and you've grown up in relatively good years. 
You've heard multiple prophets come and say Babylon is coming, but no one's really concerned. And so you go to, you go to school and, and you learn what you need to learn and you, and you have friends and you become a teenager. Uh, and your life as a teenager, you're concerned with whatever the ancient Near East Taylor Swift is. You're, you're concerned with sleeping in and dating and eating, all the things teenagers like to do. There's not a care in the world. You live in Jerusalem. You're in the center of the world. You can worship God. You can sacrifice Bright futures and sunny skies are ahead. And then, like a bomb, the Babylonians show up, just as God said they would. They wreck everything, literally everything. The place is torn asunder. Your life is changed forever. You and your friends, not going to prom anymore, at least not in Jerusalem. Future is uncertain, overcast, and dark. The Babylonians round you and your friends up along with some of the nobility and they march you to Babylon some months. You begin to find your way in Babylon. It is unusual. You miss your family, the way things were. You can't worship. Life begins to stabilize and normalize, but you miss everything that there was. And then there is this decree and you are rounded up again and sent into the palace with 50, 60, 70, 100 other people. And you've been chosen by the king. It's a special thing. You look good, you're handsome, you're cute, you're smart. And they tell you, listen, the king has chosen you because you look good, you smell good, you're smart, and you got something to offer. All you need to do is learn our language, give up your gods, eat our food, and in three to four years, you'll be serving in the kingdom. You have an opportunity. You have an opportunity to live as the Babylonians, and to work out a nice life for yourself in Babylon. This was the choice Daniel and his friends had. Serve the king of Babylon, have his provision and protection, or serve the king of heaven, and we'll see what happens. Verse eight of chapter one says this. In the face of this choice, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow, to allow him not to defile himself. It's a really interesting moment. Really interesting moment. There's this, there's this, everything kind of comes in chapter one to this moment. The scene is set and, and we wonder what Daniel's gonna do because there's a lot of reasons why he shouldn't do this. He could be killed. He could be removed from the program. He could be told, forced to eat it and defile himself. He could lose stature in his own community. He could lose relationships. He could be mocked. And he has it's a, a, a number of untenable outcomes. What is Daniel gonna do? It's interesting too. It's like, uh, if you and I were there, you know what we would have said? Some version of, this is great. Just eat the food. Like God, God knows your heart. Imagine what you could do in this kingdom for God, for us. You just ate the food. God knows you. Oh, by the way, the temple's destroyed. We can't, I don't even know if we could worship God. I don't know if he even sees us. Like what's one little thing? Just, just eat the food. Ask for forgiveness later. Then steward God's responsibility. And yet Daniel says, he doesn't want to be defiled. This is a religious term. It means to be unclean. What Daniel understands is if he eats these things, he can't worship the Lord, which to a lot of Israelites in Babylon is a moot point because they can't worship the Lord, they did anyway. And so the temple is dead and the sacrifices are gone. And here's Daniel, this 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 year old man saying, listen, I, if I eat these things, I am defiled before the Lord. I can't worship him. I can't offer my life. God's presence was in the temple. It's not in Babylon. 
But, but what, could Daniel even be defiled? Could God even see Daniel as defiled? Is defiled even a category? Have you been to Babylon? It's like Las Vegas. Everything's defiled. Like, what are you talking about, Daniel? And yet there he is. He said, I won't be defiled. At the core of who Daniel was, he understood a couple things about God. Number one, that his God, Yahweh, was the God of the universe. It was very common in the ancient Near East that your gods were regional gods. Which is why Babylon, when they, when they took a country, they took all of the gods and then took them, all of the, all of the idols and all of the, the worship instruments and took them and put them into Babylonian, uh, Babylonian uh, temples as a, way to devi- as a way to defile and to show superiority of the Babylonian god. But he understands, Daniel understands, that God's, the God is not just in Jerusalem. He's in Babylon. He's still in control. He's still for Daniel. And more than that, this God who exiled us to Babylon is still somehow worthy of worshiping. There's no church to go to, no place to sacrifice. And yet, Daniel find a, found a way to be faithful and steadfast to the God of the universe. The other thing Daniel knew to the core of who he was is that uh, he knew that God still saw and cared about how he lived. That in the midst of a really hard, like none of us would excuse any Israelite for becoming a Babylonian after what had happened. We'd all have some sort of compassion. That makes sense. I totally get why you lived that way. I totally get it. Like your hope in God was gone and you were in a low moment and so you, you gave up. Like we would all understand it. You can't sacrifice bulls. You can't worship the same way. And yet Daniel knew, Daniel knew what Paul said in Romans 12 is true, that, that we can offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. That there is something we can give the Lord even if it's not in the temple. So Daniel decided that going, that, that, that God was worth dying for in Babylon decided that God was still present even in Babylon. Daniel decided that God was still worth serving in Babylon. And in some sense, like, what we understand about Daniel is this decision was made a hundred times already in Jerusalem. That who he was worked out here. We often think, man, I wonder what I would be like. I wonder what my faith would be like uh, if, if I was persecuted. Well, the stories of Scripture show us that you will not have more faith when the heat is turned up. You'll have whatever faith you have now when it's turned up. And that's what we see in Daniel, that the decision to not defile himself is one that he made over and over and over and over in Jerusalem. You don't think they had good food. You don't think they had temptations there. All of that, Daniel had to choose over and over and over and over not to defile himself. And as a result, he tasted and saw that the Lord was good. So when he gets to Babylon and they say, listen, eat and drink of all of the excess and become Babylon, he says, no, I can't defile myself. Why? I've done it time and time again in Jerusalem. I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I, I trust him and I know him, and I know he's for me, and over all of this, so in this, I can trust him. It was still a choice with an uncertain result, and yet it was a choice he had made many, many times in seeding God's faithfulness. So many of us encounter situations where honoring God leaves us with an uncertain future. We're told that our jobs, if you want this job, you need to affirm these lifestyles. If you want to keep this job, you need to affirm these lifestyles. If you want this scholarship, you need to say these things or do these things. If you want to grow in academic achievement, you need to jettison your faith. If you want to climb the corporate ladder, you need to backbite and give up all of your ethics. 
Each invitation to compromise is equally an invitation to trust God's sovereignty, God's seated on the throne. Each, each invitation to compromise is an invitation to steadfast trust. Each invitation to compromise is a question to the Christian. Is your God sovereign over this as well? We love God sovereign over the good parts of our lives. Easy. But what about the hard parts where faithlessness or compromise comes easier, where no one sees? Each invitation to compromise is a question for the Christian. Is our God sovereign over this situation as well? For Daniel it was. And he gained favor with God. Second example uh, from Daniel's faith in God's sovereignty. First was faith over food that he decided he would not be defiled and he let come what may, knowing God's sovereignty, his obedience in that moment over food. And then there was faith under fire, chapter six, at the end of his life. So Daniel now is maybe 60, 65 years later. So he's mid mid to late 60s, maybe early 70s. He's been in Babylon a long, mid 70s, been there a long time. He has grown in stature in the government. He has now, he's like, number, he's in a pool of like the three most in charge guys in Babylon. And, uh, and King Cyrus or King Darius wants to make him his number two. And he wants to be over, he's gonna be put over the whole thing. He's interpreted dreams. He's watched his friends be bold. He's basically in charge of making sure the king gets all of his taxes. And then we're told that among the other officials, envy begins to break out. They become to be envious of Daniel. And they say, man, we, we need to get rid of this guy. And they say, well, we can't find any fault with him. Like we've examined his life, we've watched him. There's nothing we can use to get him in trouble. So they hatch this, they hatch this plan. They go to King Darius uh, and they plan his vanity. Oh, king, oh, wise king, merciful, great king Darius. We should have a 30-day moratorium of prayer. Because of your greatness, no one in the kingdom should be allowed to plead with or pray to another God or another man for 30 days to celebrate your greatness and king. If anyone does pray, they should be thrown into the lion's den. And king, if you'll do this, will you make it an honorable decree so that everyone in, the, everyone in all of the, Mesian, uh, the Persian Mede Empire has to, has to obey it, including yourself? King says, that sounds great. I am pretty great. No one should pray to anyone else but me. And so he makes this irrevocable command. So much so that the king, even, and the king liked Daniel. But it was impossible for the king to break, to break this law without breaking his kingship. So Daniel gets wind of this in chapter 6, verse 10. This is Daniel's response to it. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to the house where he had, where he had windows in the upper chamber toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he has done previously. A few things to note that we just grab right from this verse. Uh, number one is Daniel obviously had a, had a habit of praying towards the temple, towards Jerusalem with the windows open. In other words, his faith was already visible. They saw Daniel, saw how open, how predictable his faith was and they, ha they had to scheme in order to catch him because they knew he would be faithful. 
They meant to, they meant to create a plan that would use Daniel's faithfulness against him. Let's imagine that, that they were so faithful, they had to create a plan that they knew because he was so faithful, they could catch him. Daniel also said in, 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 in verse 10 that he knew the document. That is, he was aware of what the document said. He was aware the document couldn't be amended. He was aware of the penalty for not abiding the document. And finally, Daniel continued to be faithful in spite of all of this. The, 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 the tenses, the way it's written, seem to indicate that it wasn't like this, this edict goes out and then they catch him praying on the first day. It sounds like they let him pray for a few days to gather evidence. They let him really dig himself metaphorically and literally into a hole. Nothing, none of what the other officials were scheming mattered. None of the negative outcome mattered to Daniel. Look, for Daniel, if he kept praying, it was not possible it was not just possible, it was not just probable, it was a certainty that he would end there. It wasn't like he'd get to plead his case. If he prays openly and he's caught, there's no, there's no jury, there's no judge, this just executioner. And so he goes for days, a few days, and prays just as he did. And look, again, you and I, if we're putting that, we say, Daniel, listen, let's be shrewd here. We know the Lord can hear you. You know, just, just close your windows. You know, go to a different room. And pray. Or you know what? Just, just walk around Babylon and pray. Or just walk towards the east. Or look, Daniel, you are in too powerful a position to risk. You can do so much good for us if you just compromise this thing. Daniel had seen a lot in Babylon over 70 years. He knew enough of God to be faithful. He'd seen kings come and go and still seen that God had been faithful. He'd seen friends be put in a fiery furnace and saw God be faithful to them. Over those 70 years, Daniel had lived and experienced enormous amounts of change and upheaval. He was born and raised in Jerusalem, saw it destroyed, deported to Babylon, lives his adult life under four or five different kings with various degrees of tumult. Like he had seen everything. Everything had changed but God. And really... Like when you think about it, what choice did Daniel even have? Over 80 years, he had cultivated this faith. The text says this is what he did daily. It didn't matter who was on the throne, didn't matter what was at the, at the gate, didn't matter who was worshiping what. Daniel was there three days a week worshiping and praying. Daniel's God was on the throne. He was still in charge. He was still working. And Daniel was certain that same God would be continuing to work and watch over him. While everything changed around Daniel, nothing changed for Daniel. His God was still on the throne and still working. And so Daniel got up, he prayed. The king tried to save him, but he couldn't. Daniel was put in a large hole in the ground with a lion, a stone then covered it so he couldn't get out. Night fell. Then the next morning, the king gets up, runs to the den. They have a conversation. Oh, surprise, Daniel's alive. Daniel's faith in the sovereign God extended even to the lion's den. And this is what's remarkable about this, right? King Darius uh, is so overjoyed at seeing Daniel's life spared. He issues this decree, verse 26, of the end of chapter six. Verse 26. He makes this decree about Daniel's God. 
I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lion. Not only does God vindicate Daniel's faith, his obedience, that Daniel's steadfast faith not only was vindicated by God, but so much so that the, the king issued a proclamation to all of his kingdom saying, listen, there's really one true God and his kingdom is never gonna end. And look, if it sounds familiar, if the language sounds familiar, it's because it's repeated again in chapter seven, which we've already read. Let's read it again. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like the son of man who's coming, who coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led in his presence. Note this, this is basically what, uh, what, uh, what King Darius paraphrases. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and all peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be, uh, never be destroyed. King Darius doesn't praise Daniel. He praises the God of Daniel. And look, this is important. This is important because we've talked about Daniel a ton and you could read Daniel and, and give you 17 ways to be more courageous and, and 14 reasons to be a leader like Daniel and all that. That's great. But Daniel isn't who we're supposed to emulate here. Daniel points us to Jesus. This is the whole point. Like, I, I, like I, the application here is don't be like Daniel. It's be like Jesus. Consider these parallels. Daniel strove to uphold the law of God. Jesus upheld the law perfectly. Daniel spoke truth to power. Jesus was the embodiment, the embodiment of truth in power. Daniel would not bow to other gods. Jesus would not bow to Satan. Daniel depended on God through prayer. Jesus depended on God through prayer. Out of envy, Daniel was aspired against, uh, conspired against. Out of envy, Jesus was conspired against. Daniel was thrown in a hole and left for dead with the lions. And a stone was rolled over the mouth of that hole. Jesus was put in a tomb with a stone rolled over. Over it. Daniel came out of that hole alive the next day. Jesus came out of the tomb alive on the third day. I guess, again, what I'm saying is, if the application here can't be, be like Daniel. It points us to the fulcrum of the book of Daniel, which is the son of man, which is Jesus Christ, who came 400 or 500 years later to be the savior who came from heaven to earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, was entombed and rose from the dead that we would be saved. Knowing that all will be well, that he has come to redeem and restore all things. If you are in exile, if you are a Hebrew going through trouble, if you, if you feel like God is against you and God, God just presses in and the world is against you, look, the, the book of Daniel points you to the Son of Man saying, listen, it is not well, but one day his kingdom will reign and his dominion will be endless and boundless and all things will be well. This is Daniel pointing to Jesus. And it was Jesus who said, not my will, but yours be done. He stared down the cross. Jesus knew what was coming. Jesus knew the cost. Jesus knew faith was going to be costly. And he did it, that we would have faith. And so the application this, this morning, be steadfast. Be steadfast. Charles Spurgeon describes steadfastness as knowing what you know and clinging to it. That's good. 
Steadfastness is not primarily doing first. It's knowing what you know and then holding to it. Why do we cling to it? Because Satan wants to convince us that God isn't sovereign, that God isn't good, that God isn't faithful, that God isn't in control. He wants to convince you that you are on your own and the God you worship is powerless, doesn't love you, doesn't care for you, can't rescue you, can't liberate you, that you might as well bow down to something else that's dead because God is too. And so we know what we know and we cling to it because if we cling to the right things, Steadfastness follows. Our God is king. Our God is good. He is in control. And he's the ultimate and final power. All Christian steadfast flows from this. And so let me just offer a prayer for you. Uh, Just offer a prayer for you this morning. Know what you know and cling to it, right? Know what you know and cling to it. Here's a prayer. Jesus, I know you are king. Know what you know, cling to it. I know you sustain all things. Know what you know, cling to it. I know you are in control. Know what you know, cling to it. I know you are trustworthy. Know what you know, cling to it. Help me to follow you even when the outcome is uncertain for your name's sake. Know what you know and cling to it. I know you are king. I know you sustain all things. I know you are control. I know you are trustworthy. I know you are good. I know you love me. I know you've saved me. I know that Satan will be Satan can't thwart you. Help me to follow you even when the outcome is uncertain. Oh God, we confess that you are king. We confess too often. We are easily swayed from the knowledge that you are good, that you are holy that you love us, that you are for us, and that you can save us. Help us to follow you in obedience, even when the outcome is uncertain for us. For your name's sake, amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon podcast from Church at the Gates. For more information about our church or to connect with us about what you've just heard, please visit churchinmissoula.com.